0: Hey, good morning. Our series is called Stand Up. And for the next three weekends, we're going to be getting ready for one of the most important weeks of our calendar year here at New Spring. In fact, three weeks from today, we're only going to have one service. We normally have four, uh, but, but it's actually it's not going to be on campus here. It'll be at the Hartman Arena. And it is a, a special baptism celebration where thousands of us will gather to watch hundreds of people go public with their faith. And what these people are going to be doing is standing up. For Jesus. And in in an odd kind of way, they're going to be standing up for him by lying down. You know, in baptism, a person goes below the water showing death and burial and is brought up out of the water showing resurrection. And what a person is saying when he or she is baptized is, I want everyone to know I'm going public with my faith. Baptism, as we'll see, does not make you God's child. It's like a wedding ring. A wedding ring doesn't make you married, but it's a symbol of what has happened or what is happening in your life. And so that's what baptism is. It is going public. It is standing up for Jesus. And so for three weekends, we're going to be talking about standing up for him in various ways. And uh, today I'm I'm going to be talking to you about making the decision to stand up for Jesus. Next weekend... If you've ever been curious about what baptism is, I would really encourage you to be here because what we're going to see is baptism isn't a ritual of the church. Baptism is something that you do personally for Jesus Christ. It's a very intimate thing between you and the person who gave his life to buy your eternal freedom. And then week three is one of the most important talks I will ever bring in my life. In fact, I am so pumped about week three, and especially for everyone 30 or younger, 35 or younger, I just really need to talk with you in week three. It is... It may be the most important talk of the year. Now, for all the rest of us, it's important too. But if if our world ever needed a generation of young adults and young people who get it, who have it together and are not afraid, if we ever need a generation of young adults who are not afraid, we need it today. And so I just, one of the most important talks I'll ever bring in my career is week three of Stand Up. But today, I just want to talk to you about standing up for Jesus. And, and the question, actually, the, the whole talk is going to revolve around this. I want to make the case that Jesus Christ is worth you standing up for him, that he is just so big, you cannot ignore him. And so today, that's what the talk is going to be about, that nothing else. But let me just, let me just start by asking you a couple of questions. Number one, was there ever a situation in your life when you should have stood up for someone or something and you kept quiet? Maybe you were with people and a good friend of yours was just being ripped to shreds by the group of people there, and deep inside, you knew you should have stood up and said something, but you didn't because you were afraid of what they would think or say about you, or perhaps you were just afraid to stand up and be alone, be the only person there with your point of view. If you've ever felt that experience, you know how awful you feel when you walk away from that scenario and it will keep you awake at night and you'll say, I should have stood up. I should have said something. If you've ever been there, you're gonna understand what today's talk is about a little bit. Let me me ask you a different kind of question. Who would you stand up for in this room today if everybody else in this room had a different opinion? What would you stand up for if you were the only person here who had a particular point of view, and you knew that everybody else was against you, what would what would rise to the level, or who would rise to the level of being worth you standing up if everybody here disagreed? I mean, there are things that I like, things that I sort of believe in, but they just wouldn't rise to that level. I, I love Honda automobiles. I'm on my third or fourth Honda Accord. I love Honda. I think the H just makes me feel good. Maybe I think it stands for Hoover. I don't know. I just... I just love Honda cars. I mean, they just feel right to me. But if everybody here thought Hondas were bad and you like Toyotas, and, and, and if it was really clear, I was in a Toyota convention, and someone said, is there anybody here who would stand up for Honda? I probably wouldn't. <laughs> it just wouldn't be worth it. For one thing, I, 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 I like Hondas, but at the right price, I might buy a different car. Certainly, if somebody gave me another car, I'd, I would probably lose that affinity pretty quickly, you know? Uh, I like the Dallas Cowboys. I, yeah, <laughs> I hear I, envy is such an awful thing when I when I, um, but I grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth area, so cut me a little bit of slack. I, I like the Cowboys, and, but I was in a place of business the other day, and somebody was just talking because the NFL season starts really starts this weekend, and they were talking about it, and one guy just said out loud for everybody here, I hate the Cowboys. Now I could have said something. But I thought, I, it's just not worth it. For one thing, these are the days of free agency. The guys who are playing for the Cowboys say they may be playing for the Redskins next year. And as someone said, we just cheer for laundry these days because the players just move from place to place. And really, when it gets right down to it, what difference does it make that some guy's running up and down a field with a bag of zipped up air? I mean, after all, what difference does it make? You see my point? I'm just saying there are things that we say we believe in, things that we sort of like, but they really wouldn't be worth standing up for. I mean, I was in Texas the other day in my home state, and we were in a Target parking lot, and I saw a brand new Lexus, $75,000 Lexus SUV. It hadn't been out of the dealership very long. Right in the middle of the tailgate was a bumper sticker. Now, listen, let me just tell you, when you put a bumper sticker on the middle of a $75,000 Lexus tailgate, you believe in that. I'm telling you. It was the facsimile of a Texas flag and there was just one word over the top and it was secede. And I told my son Stephen, we're in Texas now. <laughs> but I, I, as I smiled about that, and, and I actually want to take a photo of it because I thought that was just something worth seeing. I, I, I thought, I really doubt if that person would really want to secede from the United States. See, see that's what I'm trying to ask us. What is it that's really worth standing up for? What is this worth going to the wall for? Who is it that's worth going to the wall for? I I would stand up for my kids. Everybody in the world could be against my kids, but I'd stand up for them. Certainly my wife. Everybody could be against her, but I would stand up for her. I would stand up for New Spring Church and have many times. But above all, I would stand up for Jesus. And I say that today because it's going to be a growing challenge to stand up for Jesus in the world that you and I live in, because Jesus, as we're going to see today, is politically incorrect, and taking a stand for him is always going to cost you something. Not not here today, not at New Spring, because you're, you're on the home field. But in other places, with with other perhaps religious settings maybe with other academic settings, maybe workplace environments. Standing up for Jesus can tend to be costly. And all I want to try to do today is to make a case to you that he is worth standing up for. But here's the bottom line. He's so big, you can't ignore him. You must stand on one side of him or stand on the other. The question is, is he worth going to the wall for? Well, I would argue that he is, and and, and the thing that I want to say right out of the box is you will understand clearly that that I'm not saying that a religion is worth standing up for, because I don't care for religion all that much. In fact, I have a fundamental issue with religion because I think that it is essentially flawed at at the fountainhead. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Religion communicates that there is a way of life that opens up a way to God. That if you adapt this system, if you'll believe these tenets, if you will learn these facts, if you will perform these sacraments, if you will join this church, you will adopt a way of life that God will look down from heaven on and he will smile at you and say, okay, now you have an entree to me. I think this is why many of us who have tried religion got so frustrated with it and we felt so guilty because we were trying to live up to to a way of life and we could never get our lives right And so we got frustrated thinking, I'm never going to have a way to God because I can't get this way of life right. And that is the problem with religion. Religion says there is a way of life that opens up a way to God. If our Bible teaches us anything, it's 180 degrees opposite of that. The Bible says there is a a way to God that opens up a way of life. And that way to God Well, if you go back to Genesis, the very first time God talked about it, you will will understand in Genesis 3.15 that God did not promise to send a religion. He promised to send a person. He did not promise to send religious facts. He promised to send someone. Genesis 3.15 really occurs in a narrative when Adam and Eve, our first parents, had sinned. And frankly, they were in the process of being expelled from the Garden of Eden because they had done wrong. There was breakage between them and God. That relationship that human beings had at creation, that closeness to God had been broken because basically Adam and Eve had, had flipped God off. God had said, hey, I only have one rule. I don't want you to know the dark side. But, and, and on top of that, what they did that was so powerful at that moment in a negative way, God had given them kingdom authority over the earth. They took the kingdom authority that God had given them and they turned it over to Satan, God's arch enemy. And so now, God is talking to him. but God loved the human race so much that he said this. He said, he promised he would send them a person who would open up a way to God. I love what Jesus said, or what God said at that point. He indicated that that person would be the descendant of a woman. Now, I'm gonna kid with you for a little bit here, but there is a theological underpinning on this. Every woman here understands clearly that The human nature, sin nature is passed down from the father, right? I mean, and that's theologically true. God had to bring a child into this world that did not have a human father so the sin nature would not be passed down to him. When Jesus came into our world, he was both God and human at the same time. And he was just as much God as though he were never human and just as much human as though he were never God. And we keep seeing this borne out in the Gospels. He was human enough to go to a wedding. He was God enough to turn the water into wine. He was human enough to go to sleep in the bottom of the boat. He was God enough to get up and stop the storm. He was human enough to drink water, God enough to walk on the stuff. He was human enough to die on a cross. He was God enough to get out of the grave and walk out under his own power. He was a very, very unique, if I can use that grammar, he was a very unique person. God said from the beginning, I'm going to send a person and that person will open up a way to God. In a moment, I'm going to read a verse to you from the book of Hebrews, and it's, it's, it's looking back on the Old Testament and, and how people used to behave on the Day of Atonement. So I want to give you a little background so that the verse will make sense when we get there. You know that for hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus came, the people could not put confidence in Jesus and trust in Jesus because they didn't know the story yet. Jesus had not come. So God had to give them a scenario, God had to give them a picture of what was going to happen so that they could express faith in the message. And the picture that God gave them was, we'll we'll call them sacrifices. The people had to bring an animal and they would take the blood of that animal and they would offer it as a sacrifice. The most important day on the calendar for the Jewish person in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of a lamb and he would go into a chamber that was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in there. He could only go in on one day a year and he had to make sure that he obeyed exactly God's requirements. And what he would do is he would go under this huge curtain that was so thick that Josephus, the historian, tells us that if you had tied teams of horses to both sides of the curtain, they couldn't have pulled it apart. It was a four-inch thick curtain. The high priest would have to crawl under that curtain with, with, the, with the small bowl of blood, and he would go into, the ark of the, uh, go into the most holy place where there was a 42-inch cubic box called the Ark of the Covenant, a golden lid on top of it, two golden cherubim angels that faced each other. And the high priest would go in there with the blood of the lamb, and he would sprinkle it seven times. And seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. And what he would do is he would make atonement for the sins of people. For instance, you know, if we didn't have Jesus in our world today, if he hadn't come yet, then we would be maybe dealing with the sins of 2009. That's what the high priest would do year after year after year. He would go in to make atonement for the sins of the people. He would walk out after coming from the holy place and he would tell everybody that he had made atonement and they could go home and then they would come back next year. But what the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 was that it was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Take away, that's an interesting phrase. So if the blood of the lamb could not take away sin, what was it doing? Well, it was an act of obedience and it was a picture of Jesus who was to come, but all of us who know what it's like to shop without cash or shop without money know what it's like to put down plastic. And in effect, what the high priest was doing was he was basically rolling forward sin one year to the next year, and the pile got bigger and bigger and bigger until in John chapter one, when John was baptizing, he looked out and saw Jesus coming. He said, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, with what I just told you, I want to read to you from the Bible in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Look at this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. See, religion says there's a way of life that makes a way to God, and it never works. The Bible says Jesus opened a way to God, and out of that way flows a lifestyle. In other words, when you accept Jesus as the way to God, he gives you the power to live the life that you never could live before, which is why Jesus would say in John 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the way, he said. He didn't say I came to teach the way. He said I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus said nobody gets to the Father except by me. Now, I know the world we live in today, and there is a A person who could hear that and say, Well, that sounds very exclusive to me. Well, Jesus didn't come, first of all, to be politically correct. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we get the point. And and Paul says in Acts 4, There's no other name. I mean, think about this for a moment. The reason I'm going to heaven, and if you're going to heaven today, the reason we're going to heaven is not because we're good people. See, religion has so messed us up, it's the thought, well, if I live a good life, then God will get me into heaven. But it's not a way of life that leads to a way to God. It's a way to God that brings about a changed life. You and I are going to heaven because we have put our confidence in Jesus Christ. You know, we just read about Jesus, how that he died on the cross and gave up his blood as a sacrifice for us. But I think sometimes we don't understand just how important his life was. Because, see, Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. None of us can be perfect, and that's what you would have to be to go to heaven. But Jesus came, and he was our pinch hitter. He lived a perfect life. For 33 years, he never did anything wrong. Which, by the way, when you read about Satan tempting Jesus and Jesus fouling off his pitches, that is huge because if Jesus had sinned one time, he could never be our Savior. And we could pack our bags for hell. But instead, he, he ran the table. He was perfect. He never did one thing wrong. And then after living that perfect life, he lay on a Roman cross, and he took nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a crown of thorns on his head, and he suffered for our sins so that God could make this wonderful trade. The way God looks at it, when you accept Jesus Christ, Jesus' perfect life is brought over under your name, and your sins are placed on Jesus. You see what I mean? A way to God that leads to a way of life. Now, someone could say, well, I just think there's good in lots of religions. Well, that may be technically true. But the question that the book of Acts says is do you know another name? Is there anybody else that you know of who lived a perfect life and then he turned around and he died for your sins? I don't know of anybody else. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Well, someone could say, well, Mark, I really struggle with this, and, and I know that if I tell everybody that, that I put my confidence in Jesus, I could have friends that would just think I was crazy or I might, you know, might lose my standing. Well, it, it's good to know, helpful to know, that this has been a battle for a long time. And I want to take just the next few moments, the last few moments of our talk today, and I want to talk to you about two guys back during Jesus' day who had a really, really difficult time standing up for Jesus because they were afraid of what was going to happen to them. I'm going to pick up, I'm going to read to you a verse out of the Bible, and really it's the end of the story, the moment when they, when they are standing up for Jesus, but we learn a lot about their life from this, about what we're about to read. In John chapter 19, verse 38, The Bible says, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus by night. Okay? Jesus has just died on the cross. His body is still hanging there. He has been executed as a common criminal. There are a couple of guys at this moment who decided to take their stand for Jesus. Their names, as we saw, are Joseph and Nicodemus. What you should know is that they are two of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. Rome ruled the world at that time, but Rome tried to be fairly benevolent as a a dictatorship, I guess as much as they could be. Rome cared about two things most of all. They wanted taxes collected. They didn't want any riots. If, If they didn't have that, then Rome would pretty well let the governments have a local flavoring. And they allowed the Jews to have a senate. It was called the Sanhedrin. And there were 70 members of this particular group. And in those days, the lines were blurred between religion and politics, religion and government, so, so much so that these were religious leaders who made laws for the people to live in every day. And Rome pretty much turned a blind eye as long as it didn't affect their interests. Two of the men, two of the 70, were Joseph and Nicodemus. They were powerful, they had standing, they had wealth. You can understand why standing for Jesus was a little bit questionable for them. In fact, we just read a moment ago that the reason why they wouldn't take the stand was that they were afraid. I think even today, there are people who are afraid to stand up for Jesus. I mean, it hasn't been too long since I was asked to give an invocation at an event here. And the person who was asking me to come said, You will be praying a non-sectarian prayer, won't you? Well, I could interpret that. They meant they had no problem with me talking to God. They just didn't want me mentioning Jesus' name. You know, I think about that sometimes. I mean, it's like our culture is getting so that we can't sing Christmas songs in school anymore. Not Maybe not every school, but it's, it's growing. You and I are watching this. I mean, it's okay to sing songs about Jack Frost and the winter solstice. Boy, that's worth singing about. Am, am I opening a can of worms this morning to just say, what did Jesus ever do that was so bad? I mean, is he a mass murderer? Did it, when I wasn't looking, did he like, was he like the head of a business that was corrupt? I mean, what did Jesus do that causes everybody to want to push him out of public life today? As near as I can tell, when I read about Jesus, he healed the sick, he caused blind people to see, paralyzed people to walk, he caused dead people to come back to life. I could see how he could be tough on funeral directors, but for all the rest of us, (laughs) I just sort of wonder, what did he do? I mean, what did this noble, wonderful man do that, that causes someone to call me and say, would you come pray a prayer? Oh, by the way, don't mention Jesus' name. By the way, in case you're wondering, I told them if I came, Jesus would come with me. I'm not trying to be unkind about that. I don't know any other name. Just chalk it up to my ignorance. I will tell you, Jesus himself said, why? People have problems with him. I want to read to you what Jesus said out of the message. He said, verse 49 of Luke 12, I've come to start a fire on the earth. I mean, Jesus said, you know, you think I came to just pat everybody on the head? Jesus said, I didn't. And in verse 50, he said, I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. Well, let me just tell you why Jesus is unpopular. I mean, I think Jesus just told us why he's unpopular, when our first parents sinned, as I said, they surrendered kingdom authority over to Satan. The Bible's very clear. Satan is the prince of this world. He is the head of the world system. If you wonder why there's a sort of moral gravity that pulls the culture down, it is because Satan is basically ruling at this moment. And the Bible's clear about that. Never, never has a question mark about it. Now Jesus will someday take charge of that. But that's where we are today. And this world has a system. I mean, think about something for a moment. When I look at, when I look at sexual attitudes in, in our in our country today, I think they're upside down, but Hollywood thinks they're right side up, right? When I, when I look at attitudes toward greed, I think the world's upside down, but Wall Street seems to think it's right side up. When I look at the attitudes toward marriage and commitment and family, I think the world's upside down, but there are a lot of people in our world today who think it's right side up. And so when Jesus comes along and he wants to turn it right side up, what do those people think? They think he's trying to turn it upside down. And that's what I'm trying to say to us today. I mean, we we have to make a call here. You could listen to my talk today and say, Mark, I think you're a Neanderthal. I think you're a throwback. I, I think you're part of a different era. I think Jesus is maybe a nice guy. He was a leader of a religion, and his religion go. I guess was awesome, good in some of it, but to be honest with you, I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm just going to blow this whole thing off. Well, that's a fair decision. I'm just saying you and I have to make a call about this because either the world is right side up, and Jesus is wrong because he's trying to make it upside down, or it's upside down, and Jesus is coming to make it right side up. But well, we've got to make a pick on what we think. We have to decide. Jesus is not politically correct. In fact, the Bible tells us that it wasn't just Nicodemus and Joseph. There were a lot of religious leaders who believed Jesus, but they were scared. In fact, in verse 43 of Luke 12, it says, They loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. In other words, they wanted people to say good things about them. And standing up for Jesus, even though they knew he was somebody special, they wouldn't stand up. Well, for Joseph and Nicodemus, it was a battle. On one hand, they believed in Jesus. On the other hand, standing up for him would have been rough. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to find middle ground when you really should take a stand? You're trying to please everybody. I've been there. And that's where Joseph and Nicodemus were. You know, there, there was a point where Nicodemus knew that Jesus was powerful, that he had come from God. You can read about this in John chapter 3, which is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And Nicodemus came to see Jesus, but he came at night. I mean, he's like looking over his shoulder to make sure nobody saw him. And like, Jesus, can I talk with you for a minute? And Jesus, uh, uh, can we, we talk religion? Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born again. I don't want to talk religion with you. Your problem is you need to be born from, and Nicodemus said, well, how can I go back in my mother's body and be born again? Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical things. I'm talking about spiritual stuff. You can know all about religion, but Nicodemus, you're gonna have to be born again. Freaked him out, and as far as we can tell, he left that night and didn't take a stand for Jesus, but he was getting closer. As the heat turned up on Jesus, probably around the last week of Jesus' life, the religious elite sent out what was the temple police. They, they had their own police force. They sent the temple police out to arrest Jesus because this was going to be a challenge. Jesus at this point was still pretty popular. He had a big crowd around him. And so these temple police were sent out to put Jesus in cuffs and bring him back. And so here you know here all the religious leaders are. They're waiting for their police to get back with Jesus. And when the police came back, they, they were empty-handed. They didn't have Jesus. And so the religious leader said, well, where, where's Jesus, guys? And they just like, man, they were wide eyed. They said, nobody talks like this guy. We heard him. He's awesome. And the leaders turned to each other and said, Well, this is sure not what we expected. This is scary. And and, and they said, Have have any of us believed in him? Well, this is Nicodemus's chance to go. I do. Joseph? I do. But Nicodemus spoke up but he tried to find middle ground. He just offered this generic question, "Should we judge anybody before we listen to them?" I mean, see, that was sort of safe Nicodemus. He was sort of going to kind of stand up for Jesus, but not really. And man, the rest of those guys jumped on him like five ducks on one June bug. And he just said, "Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry." And then the time came for Jesus' trial. And all we can tell from that is that Joseph and Nicodemus stepped out of the room and just didn't vote. But there was a moment where Joseph and Nicodemus couldn't sit quietly anymore. They had watched Jesus hang on a cross for six hours and forgive the people who crucified him. And when they realized that Jesus had died for them, They couldn't be quiet anymore. In fact, Mark says this. He says that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council who himself was watching for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. When when Joseph realized that Jesus had died for him, he said, That's it. I can't sit down anymore. It kind of works that way for me. I believe in Jesus' teachings. I'm attracted to his miracles. But when I think about the fact that the Son of God hung on a cross naked for six hours with thorns in his head and nails in his hands and a spear in his side, suffering every kind of brutalization that anybody could imagine, I can't sit down. I can't hang back. I can't be politically correct. I have to stand. I have to take my stand for Jesus. Paul put it this way. He said, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ because it's, it's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. I mean, how could I be ashamed of Jesus? I mean, he's the way to God that leads to a way of life. He's not a way of life that leads to a way to God. He is the way. He is our pathway to God. He, he made a way by dying for us. I want to close with his words, Jesus' words. In Mark 8, Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is saying there, he said, this world is upside down. And if you're ashamed of him in this upside-down generation, Jesus said he would be ashamed of us when it's right side up. I would much rather be popular in the world to come than popular in this world. I've made my decision. I will stand with Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray with me for a moment. It could be that you're here today and you're saying, Mark, really, for the first time, I sort of get clarity because I always thought I had to be a good person and have a way of life to get me to God. But for the first time, I see that it's something Jesus did for me. Well, how do I I get in on that? If you're asking that question right now, you're asking the most important question in the universe. Here's the good news. It's a gift. If Jesus did it for you, it's something you don't have to do or something you can't do. When he died on the cross, his blood paid for your sins. His perfect life gives you a record. And all God wants from you is for you to open your life to him and take your stand with Jesus. I'm going to pray a prayer that you can pray with me. These aren't magic words because what God is looking for is your heart more than anything else. But I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to pray it slowly because you can pray it with me. And it's just a prayer that reaches up to God, and it's a prayer that takes a stand for Jesus. And when you pray this prayer, when you mean it from your heart, well, here's what the Bible says. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Well, you and I are whoever. So let's pray this together if you're ready to make this decision. Here we go. Dear God, I agree that I've done wrong. I agree that I can't save myself. But I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he made a way for me. And today I receive that way. I accept Jesus as my Savior and my King. I take my stand with Him. Thank you for making me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen.